In our passage this morning, we're coming to the seven trumpets. So if you are just here for the first time, um, I'm sorry. I'm just, just kidding. I'm not sorry that you're here, but it is a weird one to step into. Um, it's one that has been one of the emphases for those who focus on the end times and trying to figure out exactly what these prophecies mean. Kind of if we can just figure it out, if we can know what the detail is on each trumpet, then we'll know to be prepared. And I went down some of those rabbit holes as I was preparing this week, reading some of the more popular views in that, in that vein, and kind of here's, here's where a lot of them end up, is they're looking at sequentially these specific events happening. So I found this several places. The first trumpet is World War One. the second is World War II, the third is Chernobyl, the fourth is the fall of the Berlin Wall, which is a little bit confusing for me, the fifth is the invasion of Kuwait with the locusts being the military, military helicopters that are coming in, and now we're awaiting the sixth, which will be some sort of World War III, and then Christ will return with the seventh trumpet. And some of you might have been brought up in or spent some time in some of these circles that focused on some of these things. And while I don't agree with those interpretations, and I find them mistaken and a little bit misguided, I think there's really something to commend there. And that's that they're trying to take the Bible, and especially Revelation, seriously. And that's a good thing. That's something that we aim to do here at Emmaus Road as well. That's why we're going through this book now as a church. Because it's often been neglected and we want to actually take it seriously and see what it has to say to God's people. So as we look to take this passage seriously today, I think one of the most helpful things that we can do is to remind ourselves of the context of the early churches, the ones who would have been receiving this first. Because the text actually it means, needs to mean something to them too, not just something that's going to happen for people 2,000 years later. So there's seven churches in Asia Minor, and seven, we've said, is the number of completeness, so it's representing the whole church, and they're suffering persecution under the Roman Empire, and they're experiencing persecution from other pagan cultures that are under rule of the Roman Empire. And they're also experiencing these external pressures that are trying to get them to forsake faithfulness to the Lord. It's happening in everything that they're doing. And some, as we've read in chapters 2 and 3 to the seven churches, we see that that's actually, some of that's happening. We have some have um, abandoned the love they have at first. Some are listening to false teaching. Some are involved in and allowing sexual immorality in the church. Some are eating food sacrificed to idols. Some have become lukewarm and no longer see their need. And the suffering need hope. They cry out, How long, O Lord? We saw that with, in, uh, last Sunday in 6.11, I think. People crying out, How long? And then those who have given in to these external pressures that have disobeyed, they need to repent, to turn away from their sins and return to the Lord. And aren't those the same things that you and I need today? 
situation's different. (laughs) But we need hope that the Lord has not left us and that He will deliver us. And we need to see Christ in His glory and His power and His justice in whom the presence of all other comforts and powers pale. And I think we see both of those in these seven trumpets. So we're going to read, we're going to read this whole section. It's kind of a long reading. I'm going to skip the interlude there. So we're going to go 8, 6 to 9, 21, and then 11, 14 to 19. So we want to just kind of step back and, and see the forest and not just look at the specific trees. So like Danny last week, I'm going to say, if you're comfortable with it and don't think you'll fall asleep, just close your eyes and listen as it's being read. If not, you can feel free to read along. So let's read together. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe! to those who dwell on the earth, at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and sting like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails." They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name is Hebrew, is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. 
Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. But these three plagues, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. Down to 11.14. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of our world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we ask for your help. We thank you for your word, for revealing yourself to us, for giving us hope. We ask that you would give us some clarity as we look at this passage. It has been a source of much confusion. We ask that you would use this time to build us up in Christ, to conform us more into him, his image, and to help us to love you more. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So who here is excited about the Lion King coming out? One person. That's good. <laughs> two. We've got, we've got two. Expected more than that, to be honest. But uh, It's coming out this week. Allison wants to see it, so I have to wait till she gets back. So no spoilers. Just kidding, I'm about to spoil it for you right now. Um, but how do you think about the story of The Lion King? So it was supposed to be one of the first Disney animation movies with its own original plot. 
So how many of you noticed that the Lion King is basically Hamlet with lion and for kids? Hands? Eight of us. Okay. So if you haven't, this will work out well. So if you hadn't noticed, think about it right now. So you have the king is murdered by his brother. You have a fatherless prince, a villainous uncle. The uncle convinces the prince to go into exile. The prince's father reappears to him to encourage him to go back. The prince returns home to take his throne. Now, we could argue the ending's different, right? But there's actually an alternate ending for the Lion King where Simba actually goes off the cliff and then Scar is destroyed. And uh, Scar actually takes Horatio's line and says, Good night, sweet prince. I think it was a good move changing that so that Simba lives. You know, it's good for the kids watching it. Don't need any more of that. But seeing that the Lion King is actually a reframing of Shakespeare, all the points, the plot points are all the same, it can change the way that we look and think about the movie. There's something similar happening with that in our passage today. The examples I gave of some of these interpretations of this passage are like seeing this, this passage just kind of out on its own as this self-contained, independent text that's free from any context. It's like watching The Lion King and not seeing anything of Hamlet, which none of you will be able to do now, ever again. But we can't read this passage like that, and we can't actually understand it or appropriately apply it without seeing how it actually connects to the background in the Old Testament, to the history of God's people and his relationship with them. And there is a ton of it in our passage, just thing after thing. It's a connection to Old Testament. And we cannot cover anywhere near that. One of the commentaries I looked at was like 160 pages just on like Old Testament connections. <laughs> so I have 30 minutes, so I'd have to talk really fast. But no, we can't cover that and we can't look at all of those details. So I'm sorry if that's what you are expecting today. But there is one overarching connection. And if we miss it, I think we miss the whole point of this passage. And maybe you noticed it as I read. Our passage this morning reframes the Exodus story. It's the defining story of the people of God in the Old Testament. It's the one that defines his relationship to them. It's God delivering his people. It's everywhere. Read the Psalms. It's recounted over and over and over again. We look at the Ten Commandments right before he starts. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. As we look at the prophets, it's a call back to God, to faithfulness to him, to the one who has redeemed you from slavery in Egypt. It is this redemption that defines the people of God, and it is this redemption that looks forward to Christ. And both begin with God's people crying out. In Exodus, God says that he, he heard the cries of his people and he saw their sufferings and has come to deliver them to the promised land. Danny covered some of this last week, so I'm not going to go over it again, but the verses just before in chapter 8 talk about God's prayers going up. We have references to them in, in chapter um, 6 as well. 
God is responding to the prayers of His people to deliver them to the eternal promised land. Then in our trumpets we see hail and fire, grass and plants destroyed, water becoming blood, fish dying, people unable to drink water, the sun being darkened, a plague of locusts, death. We didn't read it, but in 10.1 there's an angel wrapped in a cloud, his legs like pillars of fire. Does that ring a bell for wilderness being brought to the Red Sea? And then continuing on. And finally, encountering God in 11.19 there. It's the same language of God's presence accompanied by lightning, thunder, and an earthquake that we see when God's people reach Sinai. With the seven trumpets, the exodus is reenacted for God's people at a different time. It's a final exodus that He is delivering us from the presence of sin and suffering and bringing us home into the eternal promised land. So that's what we're going to see. God is working deliverance for His people. He does this as He reveals His glory, as He raids His enemies, and as He restrains His judgment. And to work a little bit to get that alliteration for y'all, but there you go. And because God is working our deliverance, we can have hope. We can remain a faithful witness, not giving in to the pressures around us, even as we are surrounded by suffering pain, and difficulty. First, God is working deliverance for His people as He reveals His glory. We see this really clearly in Exodus where the plagues are specifically targeted at the gods of Egypt. They're saying, it's God saying, your gods are no gods. I am Lord over all. The things the Egyptians prayed to worshipped, counted on for protection and provision, could do nothing for them. In fact, God was using them against them. For the churches in Revelation, the situation's a little different. They don't have these same deities. The ones under whom they're suffering are the Romans and these other cultures. But we see God's judgment fall nonetheless. So what do we see if we just look at a cursory reading First, the earth and its plants. Next, the sea and its creatures and the ships. Then the rivers and springs. Finally, the sun, moon, and stars. So some will take these first four together um, and just say that they simply refer to all of creation. I think it's easy to see how they get there. It kind of describes the different realms. But there are other ways of looking at them as well. So one commentator takes it this way. The first trumpet, the environments affected with the second commerce as the ships were going down. You think of trade on the Mediterranean. The third is natural resources. And the fourth is vision. And I would lean more toward this because we see the imagistic language, especially in the next two. So it would be weird to see a shift from something that's purely literal into this imagistic language. So I think it's got to be representing something a little different. But that doesn't mean it doesn't include all these realms. I think the fourth is the, the hardest to take literally. The sun, moon, and stars, we don't 
see that, but an understanding of spiritual darkness actually fits really well, especially with um, John being the author of Revelation. If you think to his gospel, as he started out, he's referring to Jesus, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. It's a picture of spiritual darkness. It's all throughout. But however you want to take them specifically, these four, like the gods of Egypt, are things that we cannot look to. Things that we cannot put our faith, hope, and trust in. And we do that all the time. We think if we can control it or if we can just do the right things, if we follow these steps, we can make things work out the way we want, that things will be fine. That isn't the case. As we look around, I mean, you think of last summer, the campfire out in California. You don't control that. Think of hurricanes that hit the, hit the coasts. We don't control that. If you look at commerce, just think it was 10 years ago. We're going into the recession and millions of people are losing their homes and their savings. We don't actually control it. As we talked about earlier, the early church was giving in to these external pressures at different points. They're conforming to the culture around them, becoming like the nations. And John is calling them to repentance And in that regard, it's the same message for us. It's so easy to get caught up in what's going around and not even realize it for us to look almost no different than the people around us. Except we go to church on Sunday. Maybe use less cuss words. But in all the things that we're spending our time on, it can be the same all the things that we're hoping for, longing for, the house, the car, the family, it can be all the exact same things as the world around us. So I have to ask you, what are you putting your faith, hope, and trust in? If it is not Christ, it will fail you. If you haven't experienced that yet, just wait. If you notice, these aren't even bad things in and of themselves. In fact, they're actually good things that God created, as they were in Egypt. And yet God is gracious enough to pour out judgment on His creation to show us our need for Him, to get us to cling to Him. doesn't make it easy. If you think about the people in Israel as they're in Egypt, as these plagues are all happening, first thing that happens before the plagues even with the snake is, well, now you're going to make bricks with no straw. (laughs) It's not easy. It's hard. And yet God is working deliverance. He's working our deliverance, even from our idols, as He's revealing His glory and His control and power over and against all of them. 
God is also working deliverance for his people as he raids their enemies. This is the hardest R for me to get. I'd use a thesaurus to get there, but he does. He goes after the enemies here, as he did in Egypt. And at the same time, he protects his people. You look at verse 8.13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So here we see an intensification. And that's reflected in the length of the text. The first four trumpets are really short and then these are longer. It's more intense. And an eagle is simultaneously a sign of salvation for those who are in God and a symbol of judgment for his enemies. After the exodus, the people do get to Mount Sinai. And this is how the Lord describes their deliverance. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This first makes me think of the movie, uh, Return of the King. I don't know if it's in the book yet. I'm in two towers right now. But in the movie, that, that last battle where they're trying to delay for Frodo and Pippin sees the eagles coming and he yells, the eagles are coming, the eagles are coming. And it's wonderful news for Gandalf and company. And it is terrible news for the orcs and the ring race. And that's what it's like here. The eagles are good news for the people of God, and they are terrible news for his enemies. That's what it says, those who dwell on earth. Throughout Revelation, that's, there's the earth dwellers and the heaven dwellers, if you will. That reference, those who dwell on the earth are those who are not among God's people, in contrast to those whose home is with the Lord. And what we see in these next two trumpets are judgments aimed specifically at the ungodly. There's torment, but not death in the fifth. And then there's death in the sixth. This also fits with the way the Exodus worked. Right? Some of the earlier plagues affected the whole land, and then we start to see this distinction between it's happening among the Egyptians, but not in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites are. We see in this sixth trumpet a star fall from heaven, which I take to be Satan. And he has an army from the abyss. And yet we see that it is not something for us to fear. We see that God is using it, that he is sovereign over them for his purposes, for our good. And they're depicted as locusts, which we see in... Exodus, that's one of the plagues. But then also, the longer description kind of sounds like Joel 1 and 2, which is this army of locusts, which is modeled after the Exodus. It says in verse 4 that they were only to harm those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. That is, all those who belong to Christ. If we think back to the Exodus, we usually say angel of death, but it actually just says angel of the Lord for the tenth plague, did not harm any who the blood of the Lamb was spread on the doorposts. In Revelation 5, just a few chapters earlier, 
If Christ is the lamb who was slain, and by his blood he has ransomed a people for God. It is those who have trusted in Christ in his life, death, and resurrection who are sealed. They belong to him, and he protects them from this judgment. Yet those who do not trust in Christ are not shielded. In fact, they're the ones against whom the judgment is sent. This isn't something that we like to talk about. Right? seems like every time Dan's gone or has me preach, I get these judgment passages. This happens over and over. Semi-intentional, I think. This isn't something that we like to talk about. It's not something that we like to hear, and I don't want to stand up here and talk about it. We'd rather cover 1 John 4, God is love. <laughs> it's an easier message. But God's judgment and justice is a good thing. We shy away from these passages that talk about justice because it doesn't feel right to us. Because we want to focus on love and mercy and grace. And those are good things. If you notice, those are the things that we were singing about. Praise God for those things. But God is also just. And that is good. And we can't forget that. Over and over, God's people are crying out for justice against those oppressing Him. And it's right for them to do so. Think about our call to worship today. It's the end of Psalm 13. If you look at the first few verses in that, that's what it is. How long, O Lord? We should cry out for justice and even cry out against those oppressing God's people. Yet we should not do it with hatred or vengeance in our hearts. You can imagine those being persecuted by the Romans, being killed, crying out to God for relief, for justice. And you can imagine that right now for the church in China. I think maybe we don't like it because we're not experiencing persecution like that. Maybe then we'd understand it more. Yet we can cry out with our brothers and sisters who are experiencing that. We should be crying out on their behalf. Yet in love, with the hope that their persecutors will repent. The best example we have of this are these we call it imprecatory passages where you're calling down God's wrath on oppressors, calling down His justice. We really shy away from those. <laughs> we don't turn those psalms into songs that we sing as a congregation. The best example is read Psalm 83. It's crying out for God to consume their enemies. 
Yet he says, the hope is that they will be put to shame and that they will turn and seek the Lord. God's justice is good. And it's something we should desire. And yet we should desire repentance and forgiveness for those oppressors as well. And they don't have to be mutually exclusive. And in answer to the prayers of the saints, many of them are tormented to the point of desiring death or are killed. That's the fifth and sixth trumpets. And we would hope that those experiencing this, that they'd see it and they would turn to the Lord, like I just said. But alas, we read in 9.20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders of their sorceries, of their sexual immoralities, or of their thefts. They continue in their sin, even despite the judgment. God is working deliverance for His people as He raids their enemies. He's also working deliverance for His people as He restrains His judgment. As you look throughout these first six trumpets, you see this figure in all of them, a third. It's a significant minority, but it is a minority. It is a restraint of complete justice. It's a third of this, a third of this, a third of this. Throughout, the judgments are partial. does not mean they're not severe, but they are partial. We see the same thing in Exodus. All of the plagues stop. And the final plague only takes the firstborns. Why would God restrain his, restrain his judgments? Why not just deliver us already? Once and for all. If God's people are suffering and crying out, how long, O oh Lord? And if God is responding to our prayers, why the delay? I think we have to go to 2 Peter 3 to get the clearest answer to this. Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And yet, we just read that the rest of mankind did not repent. I think some could see this as a contradiction. I believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God, that there are no contradictions in it. That if we're seeing an apparent contradiction, it's that we're not actually understanding what's happening there. And I think the answer to how these fit together is in a portion that we skipped. So in chapter 11... We've had the first six trumpets. God's judgments are announced. The prayers of His people are being answered. He's working for their deliverance from presence of sin and suffering. And in 10, 6, and 7, we're told that there will be no more delay. 
So we expect like that. And yet there's this other passage in there. I think that means that that has to be taking place at the same time, simultaneously. And what do we see in the first 13 verses of chapter 11? We see the church as a witness, given authority to witness. You think Matthew 28, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go now. It's him giving us authority in that. And how are they clothed? They're in sackcloth. They're mourning over the judgment that is in their message. And they're hoping for the repentance of its hearers. The partial judgments show a taste of God's judgment, but in and of themselves, they don't bring people to repentance. And think of this like Romans 1, where we see the wrath of God is being poured out against all mankind for what they can know about God, His eternal power, they do know and they have suppressed it. And yet apart from God's revelation, we do not know the way to salvation. It's the same with these judgments. They're experiencing them. But instead of saying, God, I turn to you. I don't want to trust in these things. They're saying, how can there be a God? It's kind of what you see in that fifth trumpet that actually the demons or Satan's army there is actually targeting his own followers. We're protected from that. So the judgments in and of themselves will not bring the people to repentance. They need the message of hope and of grace. And yes, of judgment. Yet the Lord has graciously delayed so that His church will act as a witness to proclaim the truth of God's love and mercy and grace and justice so that many will come to Him. So if you're here this morning and you do not trust in Christ, you hear this message that the church has stewarded and bore witness to for two millennia. God has created all of us. We were created good. We were created to know Him and to love Him and to walk with Him. You know, we have all sinned. We've done things we shouldn't have done. We've disobeyed God. We've failed to love others. That's broken our relationship with Him. It's broken our relationships with one another. We've all experienced that. It's broken our relationship with creation. It's made work hard. And the ultimately, ultimate penalty for that sin is death. It's eternal separation from God. It's something that we were never meant for and never would have experienced if we had not rebelled. But we have. And there is nothing we can do to fix it on our own. We can't be good enough to make up for it. 
but. <laughs> Such a good word in this instance. But God. Think of Ephesians 2. But God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life. A life that we all should have, but none of us did. To perfectly obey God. To be in perfect fellowship with Him. And Jesus willingly chose to suffer and to die in the place of all who trust in Him. And He did die. He was hung on a cross. It says that He took our sin upon Himself as our substitute in our place so that we would never have to know that. And He rose again, showing that His sacrifice was accepted. And there's nothing you can do to earn that love. There's nothing you can do to earn that grace, to earn that salvation, to earn that restored relationship with God. All you do is trust in Him. that He's done it in your place. Confess your sins and turn away from them and turn to God who loves you. Trust in Him and you will be saved. And you'll be sealed. <laughs> we just talked about. you be sealed with His name and will never face the judgment that you deserve because Christ already took it for you. Don't you do that this morning? Begin to follow Christ. Because either when you die, which none of us know when that will be, or when the seventh trumpet sounds, it will be too late. Don't delay. If you don't know what it means to be a Christian, if you don't know what that looks like and want to know more about it, I'd love to talk to you. Perry, Mark, Luke, we'd all love to talk to you about what this means. Come to us. Love to have that conversation. It's not something to be fooling around with and putting off. It's what I wanted to do when I was younger. (laughs) I'll just wait. We're not guaranteed that time. And if you are here this morning and you have already trusted in Christ, know that despite any pain or suffering or persecution, God is working our deliverance now. He is working our exodus from the presence of sin and pain, delivering us into the eternal promised land where we will be with Christ face to face. And while he is working it out, stand firm in your faith, knowing that it's happening. Do not be conformed by what you experience around you, but by God's Spirit and grace in us, stand firm. Be conformed more and more into Christ's image and not that of the world. 
live in hope as a faithful witness. Even mourning the judgment of those who are persecuting you or oppressing you. God has heard our prayers and He is answering them. He has already begun our deliverance. He is revealing His glory. He is raiding our enemies. And He is restraining His judgment. But the day is coming when the seventh trumpet will sound and God's judgment and our deliverance will be complete. When the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. When we will receive our full reward and see our Lord face to face. Let us live this day in light of that day. Let's pray. God, we praise you and we thank you that you hear our prayers, that you are delivering us. We ask that by your Spirit you would help us. Help us to cling to hope. Help us to cling to the cross. Help us to be courageous and loving in the way that we share you and that we would share you, that we would be a faithful witness among the world. We thank you for Christ and that you have marked us and sealed us by his blood. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.